0: Good morning, and welcome to TCF, coronavirus-free since 1969, (laughs) at least so far. You know, actually when all the overwhelming news of uh, COVID-19 began to peak this week, can we have the screen up? Okay. When all the overwhelming news of the COVID-19 virus began to peak this past week in the world, started to feel kind of like a dystopian novel, didn't it? Or maybe a a zombie movie. Well, I seriously considered, already having been working on what I was planning to preach this morning, I seriously considered changing courses from the direction that I was planning for today's message. I began to think about how in such an unprecedented time in history, we can or should address such a worldwide pandemic as a church. It's something we have to seriously consider. I began to consider how Christians are to respond to fear or outright panic. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of fear. We're seeing maybe justified concern, but we're seeing a lot of fear and we're seeing a lot of panic. You can uh, measure the panic by the empty shelves of no toilet paper. How many of you tried to buy toilet paper this week and couldn't find any? There you go. How many of you got there before everybody else and bought up the store? Okay, Yeah, don't want don't to admit to buying up the store. That's right. So how are we to respond to this? That answer is actually quite simple. And it won't be the gist of this message, but it will be the beginning of this message. It's actually quite simple, even if it's not all that easy to put into practice. Trust God, fear not. Trust God, fear not. Think about that. In fact, that's the Word's answer to pretty much any life challenge that we face, isn't it? Whether it's a tough day at school or with the kids or at work or a normal everyday illness like a cold or the flu, we think of that as normal everyday and 61 people have already died in Oklahoma this year from the flu, but that's one of the things that we can say, trust God, fear not. We think about that when we have a culture that's hostile to our faith Or we think about that when we're dealing with a virus that's shutting down major sporting events. Now that's when it hit me, Barb said. That's when it really hit you. They shut down the NBA and they shut down the NCAA basketball tournament. I don't know what I'm gonna do for the next three weeks. I always look forward to that NCAA basketball tournament. Trust God. Trust God and fear not. Now of course there's a lot we could add for specific situations and how we're to trust God, but that's the foundation for our response to difficulty, hardship, or pain. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, very familiar verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, that means in everything you do, in everything you do, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. So, trusting God certainly doesn't preclude common sense precautions, okay? Okay. It certainly doesn't guarantee that we or someone we love won't get coronavirus. There's no guarantees. Trusting God, however, is always our best response to anything that's uncertain or hard or painful. So that's really about all I wanna say about the coronavirus that's been invading all of our news in recent days. I don't know about you. I'm getting tired of hearing the constant drumbeat of news about the coronavirus, at least for now. Things could change, obviously. Uh, circumstances may compel a different or a more complete response. So, as uh, Joel noted, we're not, ex- uh, we're not having any extraordinary measures here at TCF just yet. Just the normal things that we want you to do during cold or flu season. In fact, the notice in the bulletin was a revised notice that we have as what we call a bulletin repeatable. Is There things that Debbie has in a document that she can put in the bulletin when we need to fill space or when it's timely. And we have that in there, so we just kind of added the coronavirus to that. So this is normal stuff, okay? A lot of places are encouraging what they call social distancing. and We have a helpful list of things that you can do regarding physical contact in addition to what Joel said. For example, instead of sharing drinks, you can douse with Purell. <laughs> and if a fight were to break out, instead of punching someone in the face, just stick them with a pool cue. Instead of shaking hands, maybe you might want to use a flamethrower. Now, here's a good one. Instead of physical affection, you know, we're a huggy church. Anybody notice that? We hug, right? Okay. But instead of physical, uh, you might repent. Okay? You might want to repent. And instead of bear hugs, we do that a lot here at TCF, too. You want to summon she-bears. Okay, enough of that silliness. Actually, there's more silliness coming. But with Passover coming up, I wanted to note that for believers, there's another thing that we can do, okay? And this is according to this story from the Babylon Bee that's fake news you can trust. The CDC is suggesting a lot of weird ways, they write, to avoid contracting coronavirus, such as washing your hands and not licking doorknobs. These methods sound kind of science so we were immediately suspicious of them. Well, sure enough, it seems that the best way To avoid getting infected is supernatural, and many have found that if you paint Chick-fil-A sauce on your doorposts, (laughs) the virus will pass right over you and your household. (laughs) Research seems to indicate that the angel of coronavirus passes through each town and city every night and looks for the telltale sign that you're one of God's elect, which of course is Chick-fil-A sauce. (laughs) Those with the correct sign of being one of God's people are passed over, while those without the sign are visited and immediately infected. The story goes on to say that we have no explanation, said one so-called scientist. This must be some kind of miracle from God. The scientists said they've tried other substances, such as hand sanitizer and essential oils. But only Chick-fil-A sauce provided 100% effective at staving off the angel of coronavirus. So the sad thing is you can't go to Chick-fil-A today anyway. They're closed on Sunday. You can't go to get stock up on your supply of Chick-fil-A sauce. So there you go, folks. There you go. I do believe that this morning's theme has a very loose connection to the virus crisis, though maybe maybe actually a little more than a loose connection. Why? Because this morning we're going to look at one, what one political scientist called forged family. I read an article just this week in, in, uh, as I was preparing for this message. What's one of the first things you think of in a crisis like this week? You think about the impact on your family, don't you? and how family can love and support one another in a crisis. So though this professor didn't really have the church in mind when he coined the phrase forged families, the local church is perhaps the best example there is of what you might call a forged family. Family, of course, because we're one in Christ. That's part of what it means to be one in Christ. We are a family of God, and because of that, we in this local church are really as close or many of us would say we're closer than biological family. We're at least as close as, and many of us feel closer, to this church family. It's forged because the local church corresponds significantly to the dictionary definition of forged. Now think of this. Forged means to form, and using as an example metal, by heating in a forge and beating or hammering into shape, to form by a mechanical or hydraulic press, to give form or shape to, especially by means of careful effort. So to forge involves fire or pressure or both. We share a lot of challenges together, don't we, as a church, including facing now a worldwide virus crisis. But we've shared a lot of things together through the years at TCF. We've come through fire together. We've come through pressure together. We're a family. We've been forged as a close family. We've faced together in this church serious illnesses. We've faced together in this church death of loved ones. We've faced family difficulties with parents, with children, with spouses. We've faced lost jobs. We've faced financial crisis, again, together. we face the individual personality quirks that we all have. Let's face it, most of us have at least a little weirdness, okay, that we must tolerate in one another, but we do it together. And if there's one thing TCF does well, it's family. I think there's a lot of things we do well, and there's some things I wish we could do better, but one of the things we do really well is family. It's connectedness. It's love. It's support. It's encouragement. All this is part of being a local body of Christ that we call TCF. This is a form of family relationship, and it's defined not exclusively by biological or bloodline relationships, but more by those that God chooses to be part of our family. In Christ, one picture that's very clear about who we are, one picture we get of our relationship with Christ is adoption. This is only one picture, but it's a clear picture. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's talking about our adoption as sons and daughters of Christ. We read in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the word is clear that God chose us in Christ. We are his adopted children. So while we don't want to undermine, we don't want to diminish in any way the rich relationship that biology and bloodlines bring to families, I want you to think about any parent you might know who's ever adopted a child, and ask them if that child is any less loved, viewed any differently than a biological child? Of course, the answer is absolutely no. The love, the affection, the commitment is every bit as deep as if that child had been biologically born to them. So when we think about this, and we relate this to a local church family like TCF, these are relationships that are developed spontaneously because we just happen to be, and of course we don't believe that because we believe God does it, but we just happen to be in the same local church, hearing the same preaching, singing the same songs, working side by side in the same ministries. So these are relationships we have, they're organic, right? Our relationships rooted and grounded in our common adoption as believers in Christ can't be so much planned as they are naturally developed through the ups and downs, through the everyday issues of our daily lives. We share life together. I know that's kind of a cliche, but we do. We share life together. We go through all the ups and downs of life together. So just like you would be part of the support network for your biological family in a hardship or crisis, we become significant and even vital parts of the support network for our church family. Now this is not to replace biological family, but it's a wonderful supplement to your biological family when maybe they're not physically present, or maybe they're not as active, or they're not able to provide what we need in a given situation. So our church family fills those gaps. So something that is forged speaks of something that's refined, something that's purified and tested by trial, just like fine metals, like gold, are tested that way. Certainly in our lives, both individually and corporately, we are refined and tested and purified by trial. Right? Doesn't that happen? It requires the same kind of commitment that we see in marriage vows. A forged family, for better or for worse, for richer or or poorer in sickness and in health. I came across the article where I first read the phrase forged family through another article by a man named Andrew Walker. He's a seminary professor who also writes for the Institute for Family Studies. And he wrote this, it's all too common of a refrain, especially for those flirting with a new church that the church lacks quote unquote community. But the person who complains about not being able to find community in the local church is honestly not really looking for it. Because in looking for it, stages of awkwardness and possible offense have to be worked through. Sure, not everyone can be each person's best friend, but I've yet to find a local church where the people who were really looking for thick and forged relationships were not able to find it if they really get involved. Now, I would say that this is unequivocally true of TCF. If you're really looking for what he calls thick, I might call deep, relationships at TCF, you can find them if you get really involved and really committed. Now, one evidence of that is why else would you have in this church so many people who've been in this church for so many years? Years, You just don't stay at a place that long unless you form these kind of forged family relationships. As Walker also notes about seeking these kinds of relationships, he wrote, in looking for it, stages of awkwardness and possible offense have to be worked through. You think? You think? One thing that's consistent in any church, it's a place full of sinners saved by grace and sinners gonna sin, my brothers and sisters, my fellow sinners, even sinners who are in Christ, and are in the process of being forged into the image and likeness of Christ, which is a lifelong process. So sinners are gonna get on each other's nerves once in a while. Sinners will offend, or at least annoy, and aggravate each other at least once in a while. Why else, if that wasn't true, Why else would we find all these one another statements in the New Testament? Is it just possible, is it just possible that the divinely inspired words of the Apostle Paul or Luke or Peter or John might somehow recognize that because people are people and that means we're all flawed sinners, that there just might be occasional times when we have to put up with one another? Ephesians 4 talks about this where Paul writes, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace, bearing with one another. Now that's the uh, English Standard Version in the BSV, which is the Bill Sullivan Version, It says, put up with one another. That's what it means. Bearing with, here's the idea here, to endure, forbear, to hold oneself upright, to bear up, to hold out. Spoken of things, to endure, bear patiently as afflictions. Spoken of persons, to bear with, to have patience with in regard to the errors or weakness of anyone. Errors or weakness. We can look around this room, don't start looking. (laughs) And we can see errors, or weakness. In preparing a sermon some years ago, I found at least 38 different one another-isms in the New Testament, many of them used in multiple ways and many times. Now, many of them are implied or outright stated that in our relationships, we have to consider the reality that none of us is perfect and none of us is always easy to get along with. For example, when we see in the word, the phrase, love one another. There's one of the most used uh, one another-isms in the New Testament. But we have to remember that love bears all things, it says, right? Scripture also says, and we have to remember that Scripture also says, love covers a multitude of sins. We have to assume because of that, that this includes loving each other when we are anything but lovable. Huh? When we see the phrase, be at peace with one another. Don't we have to assume that it includes at least the possibility that we can find reasons not to be at peace with one another? When we see the phrase live in harmony with one another we have to take into account that in some of our relationships they may not be naturally and always harmonious when we see be kind to one another. We can see there may be times when kindness is really the last thing we're thinking of around such an annoying or difficult person. That's another reason we're a forged family. It's not just that we lovingly walk with each other through the hardships and challenges of life. And it is that. That's a big part of it. It's also that we are under the constant pressure of putting up with each other because there's a lot to put up with not to mention bearing each other's burdens, but we put up with each other because all of us here are necessary to complete the body of Christ. We see the Apostle Paul's wonderful metaphor for the body of Christ, and we see it in several places in Scripture, and it applies most especially in the local church. This analogy of the church as a body with parts is one of the favorite word pictures that Paul has of the church. We read it in, in 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to read it to you this morning. It's a long passage, but I think it's worth reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. Or if you don't have your Bibles, just listen carefully as I read from this passage. The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized into one, by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, he said as he took a drink. Now the body is not made up of one part but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would, be for that, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Isn't that a beautiful word picture of the local church? of this church. I hope as you read through that, as you listen to that, you began to think, yeah, I don't know if I'm an eye or I'm a big toe or a little toe or whatever, but I need the other parts of this body. What Paul is writing of here is a mutual dependence. No matter how great your giftings, you cannot function alone. We live in a culture that values independence, Independence from authority, independence from other people, the idea that I can do it myself and do whatever I want to. While independence is certainly an asset in some respects, it is not the highest level of personal maturity. There's a third state of maturity. We don't have to choose between independence and total dependence. How about interdependence? the person who's interdependent, is truly and fully developed as an individual. That person knows who he or she is and for what purpose God has created him. But he also knows that he cannot and he will not reach his highest potential until he connects himself with others in ways that allow him to function at full capacity. So indeed, TCF and any local church must be a place that encourages interdependence. We bring the gift that God invests in us and we merge it with others of differing gifts and together we become much more than the sum of the parts. And glory to God for that. In this Peanuts cartoon, I know you can't really read the dialogue, so I'll tell you what it says, there's Lucy at the top and she's demanding that Linus change TV channels and then she threatens him with her fist when he doesn't. And says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Linus says, and Lucy says, these five fingers, individually they are nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. (laughs) Linus says, what channel do you want? And turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) The truth is that there is power when we are together. There's more power. There's power to accomplish more than we can, any of us, accomplish working on our own. There's power in our personal lives. There's power in our individual walks with God that's not possible at all when we are isolated from one another. We need each other. My brothers and sisters, I want to look out and all of you in this room to say, I need you. I need you. I need all of you. I need you. And you know what? Here's the scary thing. You need me too. You need me too. I thought of another analogy for this idea when I was on the deck of our lake house some years ago. This is the only one I could find. You may know some of those people there. But this is the trees that surround the deck of the lake house. And I sat there watching the trees all around me swaying in the breeze one day and I thought, you know, the church is kind of like a tree. We all draw our sustenance from the same soil, the water in the soil, but we need each other to get to it. I may be a branch, I may be the bark, I may be a leaf, but I'm not in a position to be any of those things without the tree. I need the bottom of the tree where the roots go deeply into the ground and draw the moisture that I need to thrive. The bottom of the tree is thicker. It's more well-established. It's sturdier. Maybe those are like the believers in the church who've been growing in the Lord longer than I have. They sway less in the wind. You notice the tops of the trees, what sways? The bottom is stiff. It's a stay there, right? And even though being at the bottom means they might see less sunshine and the rain might not hit them directly like it hits the top of the tree, they're closer to the real source of supply, which, of course, is the water and the soil. So I need them. Now the top of the tree sees more sunshine and gets more rain first, but it also dries the fastest after the rain and it sways more in the breeze, but it's still connected to the tree and so it still stays green. So looking at the trees, I noticed that some branches had gotten disconnected, probably in a windstorm or something, and they were still clinging to the tree, but just barely and they had started to turn brown, and it was very clear that they were dying, and it was just a matter of time before they dropped off the tree. And that's because they weren't connected to the source anymore. Now, the church isn't an institution. It's not a tree. It is a body. We see that. But the church is a family. church is a family. Institutions are based on and held together by status and rank. Soldiers and armies know exactly where they rank. In business, salary and title and other perks often signify the status that you have in that business. I once worked for a guy who had a raised desk. I mean, it it sat on a platform and the desk was really high. And he had very soft chairs in front of the desk. So when you sat talking to him in his office, you felt like you were like this, or like a little boy looking up at him. It not matter how old you were. You felt like a little boy. He wanted that. I'm, cl- I'm very clear that he wanted that. He wanted you to know that you were somehow below him. So in an institution, status usually derives from power and performance. In families, status works differently. For example, a child has family rights solely, completely, only by virtue of birth. And think about this. An underachieving child isn't kicked out of a family. In fact, a child who produces very little for whatever reason may actually get more attention than his or her healthier siblings. In God's family, we are plainly told there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All distinctions that were pretty important in the institutions, the religious institutions of Jesus' day. Family's the one human institution Also, think about this that we don't really have a choice about. We're part of a family simply by being born. And as a result, we're kind of involuntarily thrown together with a mixture of strange and unlike people. Don't start looking around again. Being in a local church calls for another step. To voluntarily choose to band together with a strange mixture of people. Now you can look around. Look around at all these strange people that God has joined us together with here in this fellowship. Why? Why do we join together? Why do we choose to? Why has God brought us here? Because of our common bond in Jesus Christ. We are one in Christ. That's why we're here, folks. There's another story that helps to illustrate how important each person here really is. There's a certain mountain village in Europe several centuries ago where a nobleman wondered what legacy he should leave to the townspeople. So finally, one thing he decided to do was to build a church for a legacy. The complete plans for the church were kept secret, and when the people gathered, they marveled at the church's beauty and completeness. Now, following many comments of praise, one observer said, but where are the lamps? How will the church be lighted? And without answering, the nobleman pointed to some brackets in the wall. And then he gave to each family a lamp to be carried to the worship service and hung on the wall. He said, each time you're here, the area where you are seated will be lighted. Each time you are not here, the area will be dark. Whenever you fail to come to church, some part of God's house will be dark. Again, my brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need each other. We need each other. Being here each week means you bring the light of Christ, the light of your life, to light this place with the rest of us. When you're not here, something is missing. Using the analogy of the story we just heard, it's a little bit darker here when you're not here. This leads us to another passage of Scripture that relates to this whole issue. It's from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's another one of those one another statements that we see so many of in the New Testament. The passage clearly says we are to encourage one another. And consider. Consider means let's think about. Let's think of ways we can encourage one another. Let's think of ways that we can spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Think about this too. You cannot do that apart from being with each other. Often, regularly, faithfully, it is virtually impossible to be a Christian in isolation. In fact, Isolation is actually very dangerous in a lot of contexts, but it's a very spiritually dangerous place to be if you are a believer in Christ. The New International Commentary says about this passage that Christians are exhorted to consider how they can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. These things are the essences of Christianity. Since their maintenance is dependent upon the mutual interaction of Christian society, It is absolutely essential that one assemble himself with other Christians if he is to be assured of continued spiritual development. Any type of go-it-alone Christianity is unthinkable to the writer of Hebrews who deplores the fact that in the face of the impending day there are those who neglect to meet together. So what is our priority? Is being with the saints at TCF important to us? Is it important to you? I saw this week one survey of Christians that revealed, this was a a startling statistic to me, 44 percent of those surveyed said attending church is not an essential part of their faith. 44 percent think it's not it's not that big a deal to be part of a church, attending a church. and. You know, it doesn't surprise me that people don't attend church, but for people to recognize and say, well, it's not that important. Well, that's not just wrong, my brothers and sisters. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's spiritually dangerous. I believe the word clearly teaches that being together with the saints is to be a top priority in our lives. Is it a priority for you? We must learn to see the church as a blessing from God rather than an inconvenience. We must never look at the church as a violation to our spiritual privacy fence. We were never called to walk the journey of the Christian life alone. Surround yourself with gospel preaching, gospel singing, and gospel friends who will be honest with you. When the church is honest with you, receive it. Take heed so that you will not fall. We all need the church. We see in the word the importance of real relationships and how important they are in the kingdom of God. I once heard a sermon where the preacher said, God always accomplishes his purpose through relationships. And I've thought about that statement many times since then. And I do think there's a lot of truth in that statement. When God does something good in your life or even allows something difficult in our lives because we need to learn something, how often is that good thing or that difficult thing in the context of a relationship? I believe the more you think about it, the more you realize that's true most of, if not maybe absolutely all of the time. Of course, as Christians, our primary relationship is vertical, the one between us and God. And because of the sacrifice of Christ, because because Jesus died for us, we can have, thank God, a genuine relationship with God that would not have been possible without that sacrifice. And that's really important for us to remember especially now as we prepare our hearts just in a few weeks now for Holy Week, as we ponder that sacrifice, as we ponder the cost to God of redemption, which enabled us to be reconciled to God, which enabled us to have a relationship with Him. But the Scriptures paint for us a beautiful picture of relationships with each other, and they're also, they're also founded on the firm foundation of our mutual relationship to Christ. That's why in a very real sense, we can say we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not just true of our youth group, BASIC, which of course is an acronym for brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in Christ, we are the family of God. And when we see the important things God accomplished in our lives and is accomplishing today, we can see how important a factor relationships are in that work. There may be a few of us here who came to Christ because you heard a sermon on the radio or TV, or you read a book, um, but most of us came to Christ primarily because of a relationship. Somebody we knew cared enough, loved us enough to tell us about Jesus. There may be some who truly grow in Christ because they're diligent students of the Word in their faithful prayers, but most of us combine some level of this faithful study of Scripture and reading the Word and prayer with relationships, relationships with godly believers, relationships with a mentor or disciple, relationships with good Christian friends whose lives influence our faith and influence us to move forward with God. So God uses relationships to accomplish the things that he desires in our life. And the Bible has a special word for this kind of sharing of life. That word's koinonia. And we see it many times in New Testament verses. And the way it's usually translated is with the word English word fellowship. And, of course, when we think of fellowship, one of the first things a lot of us think about, especially in a church context, it means potlucks, right? It means visiting during, before, after the service. It means church picnics. And certainly there's nothing wrong with using it in that way. But these things are only a part of the full biblical meaning of fellowship, That's because fellowship translated in the New Testament from the Greek word koinonia means so much more than that. It's the word that's used in Acts 2.42 for fellowship when it says that the early church was devoted to the fellowship. Because we have fellowship with Jesus, we have fellowship with one another. That's the basis. That's the foundation for our fellowship. It's the root of all we are and all we do as followers of Jesus. And again, understanding what true fellowship, true koinonia means, we are meant to share life in many ways with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So true fellowship with each other depends entirely on our union with Jesus. In fact, it's impossible without that. Yes, the world apart from Jesus can have friendships, they can certainly have relationships, and people without Christ can do good things for each other. But you can't have true koinonia without a mutual union with Christ. One thing Paul makes clear in his letters is that everything in the life of a Christ follower is an expression of our mystical but very real participation, our sharing in the life of Christ himself. That union is what overflows into our relationships with others who also follow Jesus. So fellowship's the byproduct an end result of our common union in Christ, which results from common goals from our sharing life together and our sharing of resources, both physical and spiritual. So the more we Christians understand and discover the salvation that's common to all of us, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us are saved not on the basis of deeds we've done, but according to his mercy, that all of us are saved by His grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. The more we ponder these realities, these things, these truths about our faith, and realize that you're in the same boat I'm in, the more fellowship occurs, the deeper it becomes. It seems clear to me that in our koinonia, our fellowship with Christ, which leads to and makes possible our koinonia, our fellowship with each other, We are meant to work together for God's glory. How does that relate to the coronavirus? Let's see if we can circle all the way back and not talk about pool cues and she-bears. We'll see. We'll see as all this develops. We don't know what's going to happen in our nation, our state, our city, our world with this. But when you're connected securely to Christ, and consequently because you're connected securely to Christ, you're also connected to the family of faith, this family of faith, this local church where God has planted you, you're never on your own. You're never isolated. And whatever life brings, whatever hardships, whatever challenges life brings, you have the resources that God provides through His Holy Spirit and through your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are resources to handle anything. And they are resources that equip us to serve the King of Kings together. Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of Koinonia that you brought to this church, that you bring to all true believers in Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are all in the same boat, all saved by your grace, all sinners saved by your grace. And because of that, Father, we are able to trust in you for everything we have. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us consider this concept of a forged family that is together because of our union in Christ, but then is forged into a useful tool, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom's advancement, Father. We thank you, Father, for these truths. We thank you for this family of faith that you've planted us in. And we ask, Heavenly Father, you'd help us to be faithful to you as we are faithful to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.